Hey, welcome back, folks. I'm J.B. Shreve, your host at the End of History podcast, and we are in episode five of this six-part series on the six years that made the modern Middle East. And so if you haven't if you haven't listened to the prior episodes, I would encourage you to do that. You can pick up here, but the, the story is told from the beginning, starting in the early 20th century with 1919. And then you can go follow the series along through there. But remember, in the show notes of the episodes at our website, theendofhistory.net, you can find recommended reads, uh, good books to read, additional podcast series to grab hold of. If you want to go deeper on any of these topics, all of that's out there. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter as well when you go to theendofhistory.net and be on the lookout for some additional series, some additional podcast episodes coming up in the next few weeks as we turn our gaze into the or onto the U.S. elections and some political issues that we'll be looking at coming soon. So all of that's coming. Be sure to sign up, follow us on Facebook, follow us on social media, wherever. Um, I think that'll do it. Let's go ahead and jump into today's episode, 2003, This one of the six years that made the modern Middle East. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. It was just over 90 minutes beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq that U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. Their target, a bunker believed to be sheltering what are called top leaders of the Iraqi regime. Now, this is what it looked and sounded like in Baghdad. It was this short, and this is what happened. This is the end of history. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We believe that peace is at hand. An axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. So as we come into episode five of this podcast series on the six years that made the modern Middle East, you might think that the next year we want to look at is 2001, right? As a Westerner, that, that's where you might be looking towards. That's the year of 9-11, of course, the terror attacks on the U.S. by Al-Qaeda, bin Laden. Those attacks, more than just the Middle East, they changed the world, really. The world on September 10th, 2001 was far different than the world on September 12th. 2001. But 2003 is actually where the direct effects of that events, those events, where they were felt on the modern Middle East. That's the year of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the second invasion of, of Iraq. This is when things really began to fall apart in the modern Middle East. Less than 100 years after its creation, in the meeting rooms of the Paris Peace Conferences that followed World War I, comes the pivotal events of 2003. This episode is not an anti-American episode, this podcast episode. It's not just about how the U.S. ruined the Middle East. It's just the facts of what happened on the ground in this important region of the world. I know a lot of soldiers, a lot of troops fought and sacrificed and died 
during the war, beginning in 2003. I know a lot of those who returned from that fight began to feel embittered about what happened, what started to happen in 2003, or what, at least to Americans, felt like it started to happen in 2003. But that's not what this story is about. This story that I'm telling in this podcast series is about the Middle East, the six years that shaped and changed the Middle East and brought us to where we are today. If we step back and think about it, it's a really strange story how intertwined the histories of the U.S. and the histories of Iraq, how how intertwined they've been over the last half century. Iraq, from its inception after World War I, was never a stable nation. It was built to fail, and it certainly did that time and time again. But repeatedly, the U.S., as the last remaining superpower of the post-World War II order, kept getting drawn into the affairs of Iraqi politics, Iraqi events. It was kind of like a moth to the flame. It, it was as if the U.S. was drawn here to Iraq for some inevitable fate that finally unfolded after 9-11 and in the first decade of the new 21st century. We're going to get to that, though. We'll get to that part of the story. For now, let's go ahead and take a step back and see where we left off in the last episode in our six years that made the modern Middle East. We saw the rise of Islamic extremism in places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and how that began to wash over the entire region through various channels. One significant channel for that to arise at was among the Palestinians. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, Arafat and the leadership of the Palestinians by the early 1980s, they had been pushed out of the Middle East. In fact, they were in North Africa by that time, trying to influence things from afar. But for the Palestinians on the ground, there in the occupied territories, the West Banks and Gaza, Golan, there in Israel, an extreme era of hopelessness had set in. The West Bank and Gaza had now been under Israeli occupation for more than a decade since the end of the Six Days War in 1967. By the end of the 70s, the hardest line Israeli government to date had come to power under the leadership of Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Now, you'll remember that Begin won the Nobel Peace Prize along with Anwar Sadat, but that's, that's one of those weird facts of history that doesn't really synchronize correctly. Begin was not a peacemaker. He was a radical, a, a hardliner. In the early days of the Israeli state, he was even ostracized from the likes of Ben-Gurion, ben the founder of Israel, or the, not the founder, but the, he was seen as like one of the founding fathers. Along with other well-known Israeli leaders, Begin was ostracized from these guys due to his hardline, his extremist, and what many saw as unrealistic stances. During the move towards independence before Israeli statehood by the British, they actually saw Begin as a terrorist. In fact, Begin wrote what many regard as the first book on modern-day terrorism called The Revolt, which is about his tactics and actions against the British at that time. In 1978, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, but that really wasn't who he was. Toward the Palestinians, he was a racist, racist. He was a hardliner. And the policies he implemented during his five years as prime minister of Israel, they were the beginning of this apartheid system that Israel set up in the occupied territories for the Palestinians. Now, the term apartheid, that was originally, originally used to refer to South Africa's system of segregation and oppression by whites over blacks in that country. Increasingly, over the last couple of decades, 
It's also become associated with Israeli policies regarding the Palestinians. Former President Jimmy Carter, remember, the guy at the, at the peace talks in 1978, once he was out of office, he was among the first big names to use that terminology there of apartheid when it came to the situation in Israel and Palestine. But today, it's more than, than commonplace. Amnesty International, they break down the tools of apartheid that Israel uses with the Palestinians. I'll post a link to this article that, that I'm just quoting from here in this podcast. It shows, it shows what they call as apartheid there in the West Bank, there in Gaza. And this is what Amnesty International says. They said, apartheid is keeping Palestinians separated from each other into distinct territorial, legal, and administrative domains. It's decades of discriminatory land and property seizures, home demolitions, and forced evictions. It's a system of laws and policies that keep Palestinians restricted to enclaves, subject to several measures that control their lives and segregated from Jewish Israelis. And the deliberate impoverishment of Palestinians keeping them at great disadvantage in comparison to Jewish Israelis. That's what apartheid looks like in Israel, according to Amnesty International. The situation wasn't good before 1967, and it wasn't good afterwards. But during the 1980s, with unconditional American support to the Israeli government, it got a lot worse, a, a lot worse. And it settled into official Israeli policy regarding the Palestinians. Noam Chomsky, he wrote his famous book, The Fateful Triangle, during this period when he detailed the bizarre cycle of oppression against the Palestinians enforced by the Israelis and supported by the U.S. government. This was one of the first books I actually read on this topic that kind of turned my eyes onto the reality of what was going on beyond the headlines of what is usually covered in the U.S. Now, I should put in a plug here. If you want to go deeper into this topic on Israel and Palestine, Listeners should check out the deep dive podcast series I did on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's available to our Patreon supporters. That's a, it's a 25-episode series that will give you a good handle on how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how that came to be. But back to this story. In the 1980s, you have this growing oppression. You have no voice for the Palestinians because their leadership and the persons like Yasser Arafat had been separated from them. And like we saw in the last episode, you have this growing trend in the Middle East toward Islamic extremism. And this is one of the harsh lessons of history in general, but particularly of history in the modern Middle East, where whenever oppression increases, whenever voices are not heard, extremism is going to blossom. And that's what happened in the 1980s. There was a group known as Hamas that was born during this time period. Now, Hamas is an acronym. It means Islamic Resistance Movement. It was an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, birthed out of Egypt decades earlier, but really Hamas was its own entity. Its own, yeah, its, its own entity, that's the best way to put it. The extremism we know as Hamas, Hamas today, especially after October 7th, 2023, that's not the way it started. Now, it wasn't a peace movement by any means, but it also wasn't necessarily an extremist movement. It was, it was born out of the chaos of the Intifada. The Intifada is another Arabic word. It means uprising. And in the second half of the 1980s, the Palestinian people in the occupied territories, they finally started fighting back against the Israelis. Now, it wasn't a fight they could win, but it wasn't about winning. It was just about fighting back. There's a famous photo 
of the Intifada. Actually, a lot of fa uh, famous photos with this same kind of description. And it's of Palestinian kids throwing rocks at Israeli tanks. That was the spirit of the Intifada. It was a hopeless cause, not, not intended to produce a victory, but intended to just give a voice to the resistance, even if that voice was nothing more than a cry of despera desperation. It was people tired of being beaten, tortured, imprisoned, deported, their homes blown up. And as the Intifada continued year by year, it became more and more violent. And the Islamic resistant movements became, became better organized, more targeted in their retaliation against the Israelis. The founder of the Hamas was this guy known as Sheikh Yassin. Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, who served as the organization's spiritual leader before he was killed by an Israeli missile strike in 2004, founded the Palestinian Islamist militant group in 1987 after the first Intifada or Palestinian uprising against Israel. Now Yassin was actually paralyzed from the age of 12. He was confined to a wheelchair his entire life. Kind of a fitting image when you think about it for the figurehead of Palestinian resistance in the 1980s. This man of, of no physical strength exercised enormous influence in crafting Islamic resistance and the shaping of Hamas in the 1980s. It was said that with the wink of an eye, this quadriplegic, he could do more damage to the Israelis than any able-bodied man. Now, you see in himself, he was going to be killed in 2004. That's when he would die. He was actually fired upon from an Israeli Apache helicopter while being wheeled out of a mosque following his morning prayers, two Hellfire missiles took him and his bodyguards out, this guy in a wheelchair. Now, he was a terrorist. He was a bad dude. But it's just a strange picture of the, the lack of equilibrium, the lack of, of parity between these two groups. Yassin was not a peaceful man. He fomented a lot of violence in the latter half of his life, but he was an effective man. Violence was not all that Hamas was about either. It was broken down into different levels of engagement with Palestinian society. It was a char charitable, a, a humanitarian organization that helped get food and water to Palestinians in the occupied territories when the Israeli army laid siege to them. It was a political organization, and of course, it was also a terrorist organization. And as the violence of the Intifada escalated, Hamas instigated violent reprisals against the Israelis. During the Intifada, less than 200 Israelis were killed, but thousands were injured. Israel deployed tens of thousands of soldiers into the occupied territories, which resulted in the deaths of thousands of Palestinians. Yassin and Hamas, they imposed an extremist element on all of Palestinian society. And they did this, this was something they added into the mix, added into the, the whole concoction of chaos there. And it wasn't just against the Israelis. It was also against the Palestinians. Hundreds of Palestinians were actually killed by Hamas as their society was repositioned from a political footing to an Islamic footing. Palestinians seen as collaborators with the Israelis were executed. Some estimates say that as many as 800 such collaborators were executed during this time period. Now, one of the things we see in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is how Israel always ends up regretting that they didn't cooperate, didn't work with the last leader of the resistance that formed against them. And so as the Intifada wore on into the, the early uh, 1990s, that's exactly what happened. As much as the IDF and the Israeli politicians hated Yasser Arafat, they hated Hamas and the new Islamic extremists even more. 
The problem was that by this time, Arafat had, or the Israelis had already neutralized a lot of Arafat's influence in the occupied territories and the wider Palestinian population. By the mid-1990s, Arafat was seen by many Palestinians as corrupt. He was seen as incapable of delivering on the hope and promises of Palestinian return to their homes. Maybe Hamas and the other newly birthed Islamic organizations during this time, maybe they couldn't do that either. And most Palestinians probably recognize that. But at least these Islamic resistance movements, at least they offered a pathway to fight and to resist the oppression of the Israelis. That's the way many Palestinians saw it. So that was about the time that President Bush and then President Clinton and the U.S., they began working toward a solution for peace in the Middle East, peace between Israelis and Palestinians. The new agreement which will be signed today between the Israelis and the Palestinians represents a wonderful opportunity to move the peace process forward. It is a product of hard work and the growing understanding by Israelis and Palestinians alike that the fulfillment of one side's aspirations must come with and not at the expense of the fulfillment of the other side's dreams. The two sides have both strong positions to be reconciled and shared interests to be pursued together. They know there's no sense in an endless tug of war over common ground. The United States has been honored to support these efforts for peace. My generation grew up on terms like the two-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is what was talked about on White House lawns. There would be these big treaties and promises signed and agreed to. It's really kind of funny. If it, I, I guess it'd be funny if it wasn't so dismally sad, so dismally frustrating. The two-state solution was what had been proposed by the UN way back in 1948. It wasn't honored then. It wasn't honored in 1967. And now in the 1990s, why should anyone believe it would be honored now? And of course it wasn't. 30 years on, 30 years later, we know that, or we should know that by now. There hasn't been a two-state solution. There was a two-state promise, but that promise was broken. So since the promise was broken, it proved the extremists right in the 1990s. Arafat was called upon by the Israelis in the U.S., they would recognize him as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people if he would work toward the promise. And Arafat needed that because he had lost his credibility. He signed the peace treaties, and once again, Nobel Peace Prizes were awarded. But it all amounted to hardly anything. The Palestinians didn't trust Arafat anymore, and even if they did, the Israelis were now using him just like the colonial powers had used the different Arab rulers from Lebanon to Iraq to Syria. In the past, they would make his legitimacy so dependent upon their power that he would need them to remain relevant, to remain in power. And that meant he would continue to lose credibility before the Palestinians, who increasingly just saw him as a puppet to the Israelis. A vicious cycle, a vicious, stupid cycle. So you see this transformation taking place in the 1990s and leading up to 2003. Hope and promise on the side of Israel and the U.S. And, and Arafat, but anger and frustration on the part of wider Palestinian society who still felt oppressed, still felt lied to, still felt used. And all of that was like fodder for extremists like Yassin and Hamas and new organizations like Islamic Jihad and others. The gap between the promises of the West, Israel and Arafat, 
and the gap, you know, that gap between them and reality, it made the extremists look more credible and on the side of truth. And so by the turn of the century, in the year 2000, a second intifada broke out. Now, this one was far more violent than the first. Several thousand were killed this time. Suicide bombings were, were now part of the landscape. Arafat, for his part, would die under house arrest by the Israelis. He was effectively imprisoned within his house in Ramallah for two years. In 2004, he fell into a coma and he died. In the Arab world, conspiracy theories abounded. Conspiracy theories always abound in weak and insecure societies. But many believed Arafat was actually poisoned by the Israelis. Whatever the case might be, the former terrorist, Nobel Prize winner, and one-time representative of the Palestinian people, he left the Palestinians in a far more dismal state of affairs than he actually found them. It wasn't necessarily all his fault. Not his fault alone, anyways. This was the trend in the Arab world. These Things were going from bad to worse. Now, of course, not everyone recognized what was happening. For the Saudis, they felt they had corrected the situation following the, the 1979 siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca that really they've tried to cover up historically. Oil fortunes were rolling in after that. The newfound strategic partnership with the U.S. was accelerating. It was a, a period of stability and growing alliances between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. That stability came with some trade-offs, though. The Saudi regime had always been hardline, but now they went into overdrive, at least in appearance. The voices of Islamic fundamentalism dominated Saudi society, even as the members of the royal family lived it up, often in a really hedonistic lifestyle, around the world, aboard their jets, in their mansions. In exchange for this hypocrisy, the Saudis became a channel for toxic and continuing blasts of extremist ideology into Central Asia. The American CIA partnered with that effort, arming and radicalizing Muslims from different parts of the world who descended upon Afghanistan to, to fight against the Soviets' invasion there. And by the end of the 1980s, the Mujahideen had won and the Soviets withdrew. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Well, that legitimized the Mujahideen in the eyes of many in the larger Muslim world, but even worse, it legitimized their ideology in the eyes of many desperate, many frustrated people within the Middle East. The answer for the Middle East was not democracy or Western politics as they saw it. It was a return to, to Islam, a revitalization of its most fundamentalist or fundamental ideas. Afghanistan was only the beginning. In the 1990s, this extremist ideology began to spread to different battle zones around the world. You found Mujahideen in Chechnya, in the Balkans, in African wars. Wherever the Muslim religion was threatened, the ideology and weapons of the Mujahideen spread. And many of those Arab fighters, when they returned home, they carried the flame of militant Islamic extremists with them. 
helping to spread it into the societies and cultures of the wider Middle East. Others built networks and relationships with the fighters and the leaders among the Mujahideen, building the base for groups like Al-Qaeda, which literally translates to the base. These new entities would plague the world for decades to come. After Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, Bin Laden, he actually approached the Saudi royal family. He urged them to let him and other Mujahideen fighters go up against Saddam. He, he envisioned a band of armed Mujahideen conquering the Iraqi army in the same style that Muhammad had done centuries before. Well, when the Saudis refused and, and opted instead to let the U.S. military lead that war, far from being intimidated by the American military might, Bin Laden and other true believers, they were incensed. Infidels had been recruited to defend the holy lands of Islam. Bin Laden increasingly turned anti-Saudi and anti-U.S. His Al-Qaeda network began striking U.S. and Saudi targets throughout the 1990s. In 92, Al-Qaeda carried out attacks on a hotel in Aden, Yemen. In 1993, they hit the World Trade Center in New York. In 95, they, they hit U.S. military training facilities in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In 98, U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. In 2000, the U.S. warship, the USS Cole. The strikes were adding up, but everyone saw this as just a fringe element at the time. Neither the Saudis nor the U.S. recognized this was the wave of the future. And of course, as we know, the Saudis weren't the only ones spreading extremism. The Iranians were doing the same thing, but through their own branch, uh, through the Shia branch of extremism. The U.S. and uh, the Saudis, they didn't realize this would also become a major mark of the future. Uh, a modern Middle East split, polarized, radicalized by the Saudis and the Iranians. As Khomeini's Islamic revolution took hold in Iran, it spread to other parts of the Middle East, growing in particularly fertile soil of places like Lebanon and Syria, nations that felt at odds with both the U.S. and the Israelis, and who also held large Shiite populations. The 1980s would see the rise of groups like Hezbollah, or the Party of God, in Lebanon as the nation quivered under the, the pressure of Israeli invasions, civil war, and a new normal of instability. The authoritarian Assad regime in Syria, they had held strong, or he had held strong, since the end of the Six Days War at that time. Assad was among the most brutal of the dictators in the Middle East. Throughout the 1970s and the 80s, Although most of his massacres and atrocities fell under the radar of the global outcries because he wasn't at the top of the list of American enemies there, his infamy and the infamy of Syria, that would come later on. As the Iranian and, and U.S. relationship ruptured following Khomeini's Islamic Revolution and declaration of the U.S. as the great Satan, the U.S. moved into the orbit of a new ally, Saddam Hussein of Iraq. Hussein held his own notoriety for brutality and oppression in the Middle East, but he had done the one thing that none of his predecessors had done in the new nation of Iraq. He had held the country together, held, and he held on to power. Now, you've got to remember the history of this nation to understand its present state there in Iraq. It was the concoction of the Europeans after World War I, a merger of different Ottoman provinces, ethnic and religious groups, into one country. Then it was handed over to Faisal Hussein to rule over, a king that the so-called Iraqis didn't really know. Faisal struggled. So did his descendants until they were finally overthrown in a bloody revolution and coup in 1958. The rulers of the country were executed, their bodies displayed in public at the time, and a new leader, Abdul Karim Qassam, took over. Qassam wouldn't last too long himself. Five years later, 1963, he was assassinated 
in a Ba'athist coup there in Iraq. During different revolutions, coup plots went back and forth for much of the 60s. Following the Six Days War in 1967, the Ba'athists regained power and settled into their authority over Iraq. And it was in the 1970s that Saddam Hussein, a Ba'athist party member, he rose to power. Now, he didn't officially hold the seat of power until 1979, but he was in the ascent and basically ran the show for years before that. Hussein would prove to be another ruthless dictator along the lines of Assad in neighboring Syria. He learned the lessons of Iraq's history and he crushed his political opponents, usually very violently. There's a famous video of Hussein in the early days of his power giving, giving a speech before the leaders of the Iraqi state. One by one, he calls out different names of these leaders. And as he calls out their names, men in the audience are escorted from the room and then they're executed outside the, the room's doorways. As he, Hussein modeled himself, I guess, off of the, the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. That's what those scenes looked like. It wasn't popular, but it was effective. He held on to, to power in Iraq for nearly a quarter century, and that was something none of his predecessors were able to do. The culmination of Saddam's hold on power in Iraq culminated with the Islamic Revolution in neighboring Iran. Now, you got to remember that Khomeini's revolution was a Shiite revolution, something that put him at great odds with the Sunni Saudis in the Middle East, but, but also something that made him a unique threat to Saddam Hussein. Iraq was a majority Shiite nation, even though Saddam was a Sunni Muslim. So for a while, there was this great concern on the part of the Sunnis and a great hope on the part of the Shias that Khomeini's revolution would spread throughout the Middle East, including Iraq. Well, you add to this a series of border and territorial disputes, disputes that existed for decades, and the stage was set for a war between Saddam Hussein's Iraq and Khomeini's Iran. It was a terrible war, lasting from 1980 to 88, one of the bloodiest conventional wars of the second half of the 20th century. It's believed that as many as half a million people died on both sides during this fight. Khomeini popularized the art of suicide martyrdom among the Shiites. He would often send in troops of child soldiers to face a barrage of arms and artillery from the, the Iraqis. Saddam Hussein was no less inhumane. He often turned the Iraqi army even on his own citizens, Shiite and Kurds, whenever he felt insecure about his hold on power. The U.S. wasn't an avid supporter of Iraq, but they were a, a quiet supporter. Henry Kissinger, he once said, it was a shame that both these nations, Iraq and Iran, that they both couldn't lose the war. And that was a reasonable sentiment among U.S. politicians and policymakers at the time. But if they had to choose a winner, they wanted it to be, be Hussein, not Khomeini. So to that end, the U.S. began pouring in several billion of dollars of, of economic aid into Iraq during this war as well as the sale of some key military technology. And by the end of the fighting, Iraq had the third largest army in the world. He turned that army on the Kurds. You'll remember from an earlier episode in this series, I talked about, or briefly about, how the Kurds had long been a, a thorn in the side of the Ba'athist during the 1960s there in Iraq. Well, that continued, but Saddam decided to deal some pain to them near the end of the Iran-Iraq War. It's believed that he killed as many as 100,000 to 200,000 Kurds, depending on whose numbers you believe. His own people, by the way, between 1986 and 89. The most famous incident in this ethnic cleansing campaign included Saddam's use of chemical weapons against the Kurds of Iraq. 
Now, as ruthless and violent as Saddam who was, and as pointless as the Iran-Iraq war seemed to be, it resulted in hardly any changes on the ground territorially after eight years of fighting, that war did seem to slow to stop the spread of Khomeini's Islamic revolution. And for that, Saddam believed the rest of the Sunni Middle East and the Western world, they should be grateful. Well, apparently they weren't grateful enough. Iraq came out of the war, the Iran-Iraq war, they came out of the war saddled with a staggering economy and a worn-out population. Several times Hussein suggested that the oil-rich states of the Persian Gulf, they should help prop up his economy for the service he had done them in confronting Iran. Well, they didn't, or at least they didn't do enough. Thus came the 1990 invasion, Iraq invasion of Kuwait. It's almost laughable looking back at this moment. Hussein assumed the U.S. and the rest of the world would let him just march in and take control of Kuwait. He literally believed that was the signals he had received from the U.S. government. Well, of course, they didn't, and the rules of unintended consequences began piling up at this point. The U.S. led a massive coalition to, to drive Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, known as Operation Desert Storm. The rout of the Iraqi army by the U.S. and coalition forces was just overwhelming. But they didn't go all the way to Baghdad. They didn't go all the way in and topple Saddam Hussein's regime. Now, when I mention the rule of, of unintended consequences, I'm basically, basically talking about the what-ifs of history. What if the U.S. and its international coalition had not routed the Iraqi army so easily in 1991? What if they had gone all the way to Baghdad and toppled Saddam, or at least made him submissive at that point? What if, what if it hadn't seemed so easy? Would that have changed the future for what was coming in 2003? We can't know for sure. That's the reality of history, the reality of the future. I tend to believe things would have turned out differently, though. In any event, the 90s rolled on. Saddam was still in power and still a nuisance to the U.S. and the rest of the Middle East. Sanctions and, and no-fly zones and their subsequent violations meant he was constantly in the news during the remainder of that decade. And in a way, that kind of set it up for the American people so that they would be surprised or at least unsuspicious that Saddam Hussein was included in George W. Bush's axis of evil in 2001. We were kind of prepared for this. We were kind of prepared something was coming. More, There was a, going to be a sequel to Iraq. There would eventually arrive some inevitable resumption of conflict between the U.S. and Iraq. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. We have no idea how many were on board or what, is, what the extent of the injuries are right now. We are, the 2001 terror attacks on the U.S., as I said, changed the world. It changed history. But that's not the big event for the Middle East. The big event for the Middle East was this invasion, this U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. After the 2001 terror attacks, George W. Bush defined the war on terrorism with a classic statement that included in his introduction. Actually, it's actually in the introduction of this podcast. He called it an axis of evil. Terror from threatening America or our friends and allies with weapons of mass destruction. 
Some of these regimes have been pretty quiet since September the 11th, but we know their true nature. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. The axis of evil, according to George W. Bush, was Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, three countries who notably had no ties to the 9-11 terror attacks. Pakistan did, uh, Afghanistan did, Saudi Arabia did, but most of these guys were allies. The axis of evil, regardless of their relationship with the terror attacks in 2001, they represented potential nations for, for growth and development of terrorism. Now, Iran, you might be able to see that as a truth. It'd be a stretch, as we'll see in the next episode, but there was something to be said for Iran as part of the axis of evil. But North Korea? Iraq? Nah. These were strategic enemies of the U.S. But on the presumption of guilt, the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, and that's why 2003 changed everything in the modern Middle East. That's why we're talking about it in this episode of this series, Six Years That Changed or Made the Modern Middle East. I remember the night, at least it was nighttime here in the U.S. anyways, in 2006, when Saddam Hussein was executed. He was hung, then his corpse was beaten by his executioners. And it was a fitting culmination to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. These images, that event, it fit with Iraq's violent history since its formation. From the death of Faisal Hussein's successors to the death of Qasim to the coups of the 60s and the, the ruthless violence of Saddam Hussein's quarter century in power. But it didn't fit with Amer the American vision of what would come to Iraq. The idealists within the American government, they envisioned Iraq would be a foothold for democracy and liberalism, that it would spread from Iraq into the wider Middle East as a result of this UN U.S. invasion. It would change the region. Well, that wasn't what happened, of course. Nearly 300,000 Iraqis died during the next 20 years after this invasion, thanks to the U.S. invasion of their country and the subsequent unrest, the subsequent insurgencies that followed. Humanitarian crises would surge. They would spread out from Iraq to neighboring countries, not liberty, not democracy. In Iraq alone, more than 4 million people would de be displaced in the next two decades. Far from stopping terrorism, thanks to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the nation became a breeding ground leading to the rise and spread of groups like ISIS in the next decade. And that's 2003, the year that helped shape the modern Middle East. As you can see, this story is going from bad to worse. In our next and final episode in the series, 
we're going to look to 2011. Once again, the Western world will totally misread what's taking place in the Middle East. Once again, the actions of the great powers will have devastating impacts on the region. And once again, the fires of war, the fires of chaos will burn in this part of the world. Thanks for listening to The End of History with J.B. Shreve. Check out more episodes at iTunes and wherever you download quality podcasts. Join us online at theendofhistory.net for articles and essays from The End of History. Follow JB on Twitter at JB underscore Shreve. The End of History is produced by Windmill Media.